One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Happy summer, Dr. Santosh here. Pediatric <laughs> infectious disease doctor, researcher, very tired of covid or General all-around superhero. <laughs> Give you guys Superhero the segue up, <laughs> up and away to this year's theme. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Well, you know, Santos, it's, it's July. So ordinarily, you know what I'd be doing about this time of year? Uh, I think you would go west, young man. <laughs> For that great American holiday. Comic-Con. Yeah. This is something that's more than anything else. You know, there were there were things that were absent and we had to skip. And, you know, Indians, we had the Festival of Holi, and usually we'd have that in springtime and we missed it. But I know it's summer when there – well, there's actually two events that kind of happen uh, in a span of a week. One is that Josh is fervently – posting all of his um costume stuff like just boom, boom and this is going to be this part of the co- like and that's all going to happen and then comic-con happens and then there's a bunch of postings that you do but then uh i get to hear about con crud is that right i, I get to see transmissible or communicable infections in action when you pack a bunch of nerds into a small space uh, and then deprive them of sleep, uh, effectively lowering their immune system. And you get to study the kinetics of a respiratory infection, just straight up. And because of that, there will be no con this year, or uh, rather there'll be a con at home. Sure. But you know what else you can do at home, Santosh? Listen to podcasts about <laughs> comic book medicine! Do, 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 do. Wait, wait, no. I can find something for this. Yeah. <laughs> Are we going to actually go out find <laughs> No, no. Yeah. I can find... Ooh. There we go. Sound effects. That's right. The whole budget for this year was just blown on that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot to blow off on there. Um, I'm proud of you. Luckily, we usually end around this time with comic book medicine. So <laughs> let, this time, I thought it'd be kind of neat to focus on the past and the present of graphic novels and graphic medicine. We know comic books are a huge thing now. Mm-hmm. But just like we're seeing the same resistance to masks now that we're back in the 1918 flu pandemic, other beats of history are repeating themselves. So let's talk a little bit about how comic books were influenced by medicine or brought it up in the art. Oh, and yeah. Santosh, I sent you an article earlier this week that was a little on the long side, but fascinating. It was a whole history of doctors in comics. And I'm not just talking about, 
you know, the Sunday version of Rex Morgan, MD. Yeah. This was super cool. So my, uh, I think my closest familiarity was a character that I think you might've introduced me to. It was called the night nurse. Oh yes. Yeah. Fantastic one. Right. So she travels around or, or sometimes I, I think the whole hospital can move or shift and she is the person in the world that really understands their physiology. Um, I guess she should be more of a doctor than a nurse because she actually, you know, diagnosed and uh, and treated some things. She wasn't, you know. Well, take, I feel like night nurse practitioner doesn't have quite the same range. The same thing. <laughs> exactly. But it was it was a really cool idea because you have. The, the mutant powers that various mutants are going to have are going to come with real anatomic and physiologic differences from normal humans or non-mutant humans. So you need someone who understands that. And the coolest thing about it is there can be a lot of like techno babble, you know, where you don't exactly fit it, but you can give explanations for how this particular mutant can have this particular power. Like if they have a, an extra gland or a metabolic process or something like that. So that one I knew about, but I really didn't understand how much these types of figures permeated fictional comics. And then the other flip side of it, which I was really familiar with was how we kind of lionized or, um, celebrated doctors and scientists by publishing their stories as comics. Well, the very first doctors started showing up in comic books in the early, early 1900s. 1904 wow. uh, is the further. And it was in a comic, cartoonist Windsor McKay had a bunch of random encounters with doctors as a recurring character in his comic strip, Dream of the Rare Bit Fiend. Rare Bit is, I don't know, it's not Rabbit, but that's what it always makes me think of. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Rabbit from from Winnie the Pooh. Well, just Rabbit in general. Rare Bit is some kind of fancy game meat okay, that gotcha. you can eat. And apparently it's very rich and can cause indigestion and hallucinations, kind of like that figgy pudding for Scrooge. <laughs> sure. Okay. So in one of these comics, a man is shot and, you know, skillfully saved when the physician removes the bullet. But what you just mentioned, Night Nurse, who does have a little bit of medico-techno jargon, mm -hmm. but at least it strives for a bare minimum of accuracy. Like, you'll hear words tossed around like carotid or massive hemorrhage. Sure. Um, well, this physician saved a patient when removing the bullet from the patient's capoculus, located near the diastacutus. In another one, a woman has a corn on her foot that then sprouts that then sprouts stalks, and her physician warns her that removing it will cause her to bleed to death as it's a corno plazipi. <laughs> First of all, cheers for corn stalk. And right. <laughs> but second of all, okay, so they just made stuff up. They just purely Well I, I'm gonna go ahead and fabricate this kind of thing. That or I think the public in general has become, and this is kind of our lead into that article, a lot more medically knowledgeable at baseline. Now, people are nowhere near where I think we'd all like them to be. But when you have a cartoonist or a graphic artist nowadays does know enough about medicine to at least include some of the correct vocabulary versus... In you know the early 1900s, who knows what the heck doctors are saying, <laughs> talking about, and there's no Google, so well, let's call this a cornopolisipi. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. There's also a pretty thriving industry in this day and age of consultancy, where if you're doing something about space, you're going to go to you know your local university or NASA lab and ask about that. If you're if you're doing something biological. You can go again to your local university or hospital and say, hey, you know, we'll pay you, I don't know, a small amount of money if you'll 
look over our script and make sure that we, you know, have kind of a, a good, accurate thing going on here. Say, oh, yeah, sure, we can do that. And now, this began, of course, with general superheroes. And the earliest superhero... <laughs> For a second, I thought you meant that, like, one of the comic books character's name was general superhero (laughs) i am general superhero (laughs) and i'm going to fight major complications (laughs) and general disarray general while laboring under misapprehension (laughs) general disarray i think was a real i don't know if that one was in kim possible or it was it was definitely in another cartoon that was a guy well, one of the earliest superheroes who's still around today is Dr. Midnight, okay. who is now a DC character, but he originated in 1941 in All-American Comics. Okay. And he was presented as Dr. Charles McNider, you know, your average heroic figure on the verge of a great discovery mm-hmm. of a serum that'll save thousands of lives, like mm, vaccine. Sure. When a police officer bursts in and interrupts his work to plead with him to save the life of a witness in a mobster's trial. Oh, wow. Okay, gotcha. I don't know how often this happens to you in clinic. (laughs) All the time, especially as a pediatrician. It's the tiniest little policeman. That would be so cute. I would have to drop everything and be like, ah, I'll help you, little guy. (laughs) Well, and. And you share that with Dr. Charles McNider because his motto is, he's never too busy to do a good deed. Aww, that's wonderful. Unfortunately, when he's doing that good deed of tending to the witness, one of the minions for the gangster mm-hmm. sees him tending to the witness and just throws a grenade into the room that, by comic book physics, only blinds him rather than oh, kills like, him. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. That's That's totally fair, yeah. Um, But when a few nights later, an owl crashes through his window one evening. Oh, come on. (laughs) 1941 <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> Hootie the Owl. Oh, this is my favorite. <laughs> oh, they could have done so many cool things. His companion, like he could have still figured out that he could see at night without the owl. I, I love that they just threw an owl in there. But this, this is also really interesting because. Nowadays, we're really into kind of explanations. How are they able to do this? How does the power work? It's kind of neat to go back to the genesis of this particular comic, you know, back in 1941 and say, no, this is just his power. Just don't worry about it. This is just his power. Just by making him a doctor, you've already created certain expectations. We talked about in the medical fashion episodes how a change in uniform started associating uh, people with rather than quacks or aristocracy, doctors became, you know, conflated with scientists. Sure. And that meant that comic book writers didn't have to make, you know, ethical quandaries because characters embodied the principle of justice and, you know, beneficence. Superman has to announce he stands for truth and justice. Right. But if, but at this time, and especially with, you know, ramping up to that war effort, just seeing a doctor, you already understood. We do no harm. We have the best interests of the patient. This was not even a question. There was no thoughts of corruption or abuse or any of that. A doctor just symbolized truth and justice already there. The white coat was our cape. As we talked about, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and that, especially in this day and age, it really is. It's the totem. And aside from that, it, the the utility isn't really there anymore. So I, I really do understand that you're taking a figure that already has these values in place and you can fictionally, you can turn them into things. The other part of this article that I really love though, Josh, were uh, some of the comics that told real stories. So um, true comics, real heroes and real life comics where these weren't fictional stories. They were probably like dra- dramatized or that dramatized. So I don't know the word, but this actually told the story of the, the one that was highlighted in here was the discovery of yellow fever that you told me about by Walter Reed. I thought that was awesome. Oh yeah. The graphic medicine movement. Um, yeah. yeah, so you mentioned they started to really lionize actual heroes of medicine, but part of that also lent itself to how comic books are designed. So we're going to kind of mix two of our articles just a bit and, and bleed these together, because to understand how they successfully told the stories of Louis Pasteur or Walter Reed in comic book form, you have to understand for those of you not in the comic book audience, how this lends itself to education. Oh, and do tell us uh, how you found us, because who are you people? (laughs) Right. (laughs) You should know what to expect by now. (laughs) Um, So comics, it's really all about the visual rhetoric, and you cut out a lot of filler. You... For those of you who are more TV inclined, you yada, yada, yada away a lot of the details and actual length of time in a lab work. Because while it's exciting to watch Santosh or I make a diagnosis, what's much less fascinating is the 30 to 40 minutes we spend on notes or pacing or banging our head against the wall in between. These images are almost always right underneath the text or counterplaced with it, and meaning is carried in the verbal structure. So you might see a picture of a person's face and the text mentions a name, and then you read about a young scientist studying hard. And what's the first thing you're you're picturing? Most of you already thinking of lab coat looking into a microscope. Yeah. (laughs) That's the universal sign. There is one other panel which is really useful, which is uh, Dr. Lab Coat holding up a vial. Oh, that's Uh, a good one, too. That's a really good one where you have the zoom in of the face and it's partially obscured by the vial because the the point of view is from someone looking at the face. I think that's a really good one. So you mentioned I sent you a comic book of the Walter Reed story about yellow fever. Now, we have covered this in one of our Around the World in 80 Plagues. Yes. But it's a a close-up. Santosh, why don't you describe the panels and... And kind of how you see them, what what you're struck by, and then we'll break it down, you know, as we do on this <laughs> non-visual medium. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. So the big panel, th- this was, by the way, in the article that you sent me, Medical History for the Masses, How American Comic Books Celebrated Heroes of Medicine in the 1940s. So uh, this was kind of very focused in uh, John Hopkins University Press. And I, I really, I loved looking at this. The panel that you have here is it uh, in the article? It's actually figure two, but so Rudy Palais, who's the artist. We've got a splash panel of Walter Reed, the man who conquered the yellow fever. So a splash panel is it, it kind of shows you everything that's going on in one panel, like to kind of set up the expectations. You've got a patient lying down. And you're looking at them as if you're sitting next to them in a chair. And, you know, the bed is slightly elevated. And so you have the their arm draped and then the, the patient's head is on the pillow and turns slightly to the side. And then you have a doctor, I'm guessing their arms, very muscular, by the way, Josh. 
And oh, thank you. I've been working <laughs> One hand is holding up the wrist so that the arm is held up off the bed. And then the right hand, there's a test tube and plunk, they've plunked down a mosquito, which all looks like they, you know, trapped the mosquito on the arm, but if I know my history properly, way back when, when they didn't know how vectors really worked super well, the only way you could really prove that that was the carrying agent of yellow fever was to actually harvest a yellow fever carrying mosquito and then put it down you know, with the test tube surrounding it so the mosquito had nowhere to go and it had to bite and put it down on the arm like that. So I think he's actually applying the mosquito to see if it will bite and if the patient will actually come down with yellow fever. You're already thinking, like, whose arm is that? What insect? What What's going on? You know, you can hear the villainous music playing. You know yeah. something dramatic is about to happen due to the close-up. Um, but as you were reading it, did you draw your own arm in closer to get away from that insect? Yeah. Or hear, or hear like a buzzing of the mosquito, like ah oh, crap, you know, did something get in the window. There was, there was, and you know, the, there were these other thoughts of like, well, who was this patient? Why are they here? You know, why did Doctor Reed use this particular subject? There's a few other interesting things that other people might not see, but I was really drawn to. There's a dropper um, sitting, uh, like almost if the, there was a steel table next to the bed, but closer to the viewer the onlooker and you got a glass with a stirring spoon in there uh, and that might have been used as a either a tincture for medication or the doctor was running a bedside laboratory where they were they were testing for something so i can actually see them like drawing the blood and dropping it in there and then stirring it up with the spoon and looking for like a color change or something like that. And there um, you go. For yeah. people who are more visual, you you start to imagine possible narratives, building your own differential diagnosis for what's going to come next in the story. And the situation becomes real to you mentally, even though it's just, you know, a very nice drawing done in ink and paint, uh, not yeah. even in a realistic style a lot of the time. <laughs> and, and some of the comics about scientists of the day really helped yeah. to sell those ideas for vaccines. And listen to some of these titles of actual comics from the 40s. Louis Pasteur and the Unseen Enemy in, real, in the comic Real Heroes. And that was about, uh, you know, they just told the story as we've told it on, on Travel Medicine, but they focused on a puzzle with French wine that spoiled when shipped to England and how Pasteur solved that problem so the English could continue getting drunk by heating and <laughs> by testing heated and unheated wines. And of course, the microscope played a prominent role. Symbols are important, you know, capes and microscopes. <laughs> um, yeah, um, for a long time, it was that headlamp you know, mm -hmm. when, when we didn't have enough lighting and we really needed to inspect some stuff, the doctors would, you'd often know that it was a doctor because they were wearing a headband with a big circular thing on the front. And uh, in the, in the very beginning, when there wasn't a good light source that you could carry around, it was a reflector. So it would reflect the sun and you could actually tune it to, you know, like move it up and down to, sh to redirect the light where you want it to go. Or if it was a little later on, it would have a light bulb in the middle and, you know, it'd be a headlamp um, to, to, you know, shine in patients' faces so you could see down the throat or inspect a, uh, a rash or something like that. That was another big totem. Yeah. And my personal favorite, death fighter, Robert Koch. Coke. Cook. <laughs> Thank you. No, it's yeah, Robert Cook, as in Cook's postulates, which no longer hold true. Uh, but so his his fighter, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Robert Cook. <laughs> he was he was an amazing physician, and definitely you know set up. He was one of the pillars of modern medicine. Uh, it's true. Cook's postulates really don't hold up anymore in terms of describing infection. But 
he kind of got the ball rolling in terms of epidemiology and infectious disease. He was, he was an amazing guy. And to think that he had his own comic, I'm so, so happy about it. To think that he had his own comic called The Death Fighter, uh, <laughs> which was an yeah. eight-shoe series <laughs> that, yeah. centered, that centered on anthrax. Yeah, and, and this is epic stuff, right? This is Star Wars or, you know, you, you think of these other really, really huge titles in you know, popular culture type of thing. That you, and that that's the type of title that they use, which, Josh, I've got to say, I'm so happy that these were artists and comic book <laughs> writers who were doing these things, because if Dr. Cook uh, had actually named his own comic book, he probably would have given it like a 36-word title describing the toxins present in a anthrax strain. Yeah. It would have gone from death fighter, Robert Cook, to on an interesting study about the facts of a microbe acquired from the back of a sheep man. <laughs> Just the, the most bland, straightforward. <laughs> yes, I know exactly what you're talking about, and I do not care. The scientists are bad at naming things. This is a hill we will die on. Not, <laughs> now, there are a few scientists who make that exception. Sure. I, I think, though, they're kind of the exception that proves the rule. Yes. <laughs> so much. Um, but yeah, so there was a lot of true stories. Now, this became important because in this era of vaccine discovery and major antibiotic discovery, there were just as many people who were suspicious then as now and didn't necessarily trust the government. But we did have faith in public officials, and a lot of that faith was due to how the comic or graphic medium really depicted doctors as reliable, as trustworthy, and as people whose advice would be worth following. I mean, if you see some version of a superhero who is also a doctor, you're going to be more inclined to think that the doctor who tells you get this vaccine to save your life is really out to save you. Absolutely. And I, I really do understand the power of this kind of messaging because honest to God, Josh, you and I, we can do science, we can run trials, we can see a thousand patients, but if the right type of communication disseminates the same information out, it doesn't matter that it necessarily reaches more people, but it's just an, a more effective form of communicating what you mean and what your intent is. So... I, I really love that there were wonderful artists around who were kind of willing to take up this cause because they were kind of taking a, a dice roll of like, oh, how many of these comic books are we going to sell? Yeah. Enough. That's, <laughs> that's true. Um, but we've moved on now. Those comics did have limited runs and you can track a few of them down still. So you know, go to your local libraries and get to digging. Uh, but that trend has continued. So as we said, even though he was invented in 1941, same as a lot of other superheroes, Dr. Midnight is still an active part of the DC universe. But over in the Marvel universe, the first doctor that I think most people surprisingly do know now is Dr. Stephen Strange, the Sorcerer Supreme. Oh, yeah. Not necessarily known for his medical ability. This was kind of an interesting introduction for a lot of people into the kind of mind of a surgeon. The fact that you had a physician that was depicted in this way of not being the more cerebral careful, thoughtful type of figure, but almost like a jock. Just, you know, what what can I fix? Oh, I'm the best. Get the get get out of my way. I can I can fix that. Oh, that that thing? No, that's too easy for me. I don't want to do it. And that type of thing going through 
uh, a humbling experience, first of all, Josh. And then, of course, it moved on to, oh, there's something greater than what you learn about in your science books, which is kind of a different discussion altogether. But, so for those of you who haven't yeah. seen the Marvel movie. <gasps> Shame my, on you. Right? <laughs> minor spoilers. Mm-hmm. Stephen Strange is a brilliant neurosurgeon among the best of the best. But in true Marvel fashion, he's got a flaw, and that is he is very arrogant and egotistical and has, you know, a very high opinion of himself, which happens to be merited. He's he's Dr. House in the Marvel world. Yeah, he is. That's true. And one day he does some particularly dick move and <laughs> then gets into an accident and injures his hands, which for a surgeon is a massive problem. So he loses his ability to practice surgery. Yeah, and by the way, this is not just like, oh, I knocked my hand. I mean, this was, was, he, he destroyed his hands. They're intact, but that's about it. So he goes searching for any kind of cure, you know, from surgeon to surgeon and eventually more alternative medicine, as it were, (laughs) and ends up becoming the protector of Earth through sorcery. So if, you know, Harry Potter went to med school first, then found out he was a wizard. Sure. And then decided, like, I'm going to defeat all the evil Voldemort. Did, did I mix too many pop culture references there? No, I think that's fair. I mean, yeah, Harry Potter's world is likewise very, very magical. And Harry came from a muggle type of thing. But Harry, Harry was a little kid who didn't know anything about the muggle world, really, except what little kids know. Whereas Stephen came into it as a very educated... Uh, and you know professional guy the other thing that i found really cool about this part josh was that there were scenes in here and, and again minor spoilers but Steve about the movie or the comic that i sent you because uh, we're, we're about to talk about the comic. Oh, we'll we'll do the comic in the book, but movie of course is going to be you know a little bit broad, bit of a broader audience there's two things which I really love about Stephen Strange. One is that when he got to studying magic, rather than a very like woo-woo type of way of studying magic, he studied in a very systematic way, just like you would in science. He went through and learned the language first and the kind of the vocabulary. He took a step-by-step approach to each discipline and then built on top of that as he went and used previous knowledge to build up more. But Josh, I thought one of the coolest scenes, honestly, was when he was told he needed to kill somebody, when he needed to fight, you know, with his magic, was that he was still a doctor. And he stopped and he said, no, I've taken an oath not to kill. And I think adding that in and knowing that even through everything that he had been and he had turned into a sorcerer, but he still held to his oath of do no harm, I thought was really beautiful. And that is a perfect segue into this latest comic that is pretty new now. Mm -hmm. So we mentioned Doctor Strange completely lost the use of his hands. Well, yada, 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 a whole bunch of Marvel history. and. He eventually does, in fact, regain the use of his hands and decides he wants to go back to being a neurosurgeon. So a new series by Mark Wade and Kev Walker is Doctor Strange, Surgeon Supreme. And here's a little intro for you. My name is Doctor Stephen Strange. As Earth's Sorcerer Supreme, I have a unique and demanding responsibility to protect it from any mystical menaces that may threaten it. But I'm also the world's greatest neurosurgeon. (laughs) And the... Which is a very typical neurosurgeon. Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And the Hippocratic Oath is a lifetime vow. So I've reached an arrangement with the hospital. They call me in only for the operations that no one else, no one 
else <laughs> has, has the skill to perform. <laughs> I love it because I can see the speech bubble and how it kind of progresses down and, you know, has the, the all caps bold, no one else. Uh, and the, the <laughs> you're reading it just like it looks. It presents him working in the hospital, but in addition to all the bacteria floating around, he sees little demons that feed on grief or disease or cause depression. So he is fighting maladies, both magical and biological. And merging it together. I absolutely love it. And this series actually goes on to do a great job. So currently there's four issues out, I believe. And his dual lives keep on clashing. Like a demon invades one patient causing a seizure. So he has to shrink down. Or he's in another one. And this is where they really capture the medical aspect of this. He's off fighting some demon to save the world, but he's also got a patient waiting for emergency surgery. So the hospital administrator is sitting there tapping his foot, waiting for the surgeon to arrive. And when he appears, this prompts her to have a long discussion about his priorities as well as his time management. (laughs) Imagine saving the world or saving the world from like some kind of I don't know, demon attack, like those of you who watched the movie, and then coming back to find out that Jayco was like, uh, you didn't do this, or to find your boss saying, hey, surgery was scheduled to start at 1.30, and he'd be like, well, I did take that Hippocratic Oath. (laughs) 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 I love how you turned one of the most, like, serious kind of not gloomy, but kind of dark and foreboding, powerful comics, and <laughs> took it into like a pure sitcom trope. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, yeah, so he he fights cancer, he fights demons. It's it's a really interesting series, and for those of you who have never been introduced to Doctor Strange, it's a great time to jump on. And it does continue our theme. So all the way from the earliest 1900s. So the 1900s were the age of the superhero. And that is continuing even till today. So Marvel, get on it. Even the CW now has their television show characters wearing masks in the posters. So, (laughs) which is great because you have like the Flash who has a mask already. And now he's also covering the bottom half of his face. Well, you know that, you know, in DC, like Bruce Wayne, it's just, it's already kind of integrated into the cowl. But yeah, there are going to be others where they're going to have to just throw a mask on their mask. (laughs) So all of these positive representations of, you know, doctors and heroes as well, helped lay the groundwork for clinical trials like the salt polio vaccine in the 50s. And that's because trials really depended on public health education, and medical progress and citizenship. So I think what we need is a few more comics that are showing people wearing masks or aliens wearing masks or, you know, kung fu gun-toting animals on missions that require them to wear a mask fighting through some sort of disease ninja. I don't really care as long as you get that message out there. Uh, But I will... I will step off my soapbox because I promise you there are links to plenty of great comics, even about the pandemic, Uh, because of course there are. I mean, it's a major thing affecting the entire world right now. So it's It's going to show up in web comics. Yeah. And I've got to say, that's one of the coolest things about comic books throughout time is that more so than a lot of other written media is that comics have that wonderful ability to stay very, very present while their big things kind of going on. So even more so than poetry and prose and these other forms of documenting and and looking at the world while major events are going on, the cool thing about comic books is that you can integrate whatever you want into the story, including present tragedies and current events. Now, I know we've been unusually serious for a comic book medicine episode, and don't (laughs) worry, 
I'm about to change that because oh, while most while most <laughs> programs do their best to debunk myths, uh-huh. you know that every comic book medicine, I specifically seek out stories to allow me to take a superhero myth and bunk the hell out of it. <laughs> all right, all right. I guess this is my turn to slam my head into the desk in about five minutes. So, so let's drink those beds of myth and get bunking because. <laughs> Let's focus on DC since we've already been down that road. Yeah. Bat Batman has one of the best rogues galleries of any comic book. Yeah. Anywhere. Oh, yeah. Anywhere. <laughs> and one of the a few of his characters have become so popular they've really gained stories in their own right. And one of those is Poison Ivy. Oh yeah, Poison Ivy. Actually, the women of DC, Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy, uh was it no no black cat is in spider-man but cat woman um they, they there's some amazing heroines and anti-heroines in that group because poison ivy's not necessarily evil she cares about the planet she's actually a very kind of uh she's a, she's an eco warrior but she just takes it a little too far you know so eco terrorist who is immune to all poisons and toxins due to experiments which yada 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 made her part plant. So <laughs> yeah. her, pow- her power set, she has resistance to almost all poisons and toxins, mm-hmm. which also has resulted in her very touch being toxic, you know, which she usually administers through a kiss. Sure. Because um, comics. Right. <laughs> and over and over time, her skin has begun to take on a green hue, which she can lessen by limiting the intensity of poisons in her bloodstream. So, oh. her, so she metabolizes poisons, you know, through, I don't know, a plant liver, which is kind of weird. <laughs> that fighting off the toxins is that she has figured out how to manipulate her own autoimmune disease. And guess what, Santosh? <laughs> okay. What? Scientists are studying... How to prevent and treat autoimmune diseases with plant virus nanoparticles. All right. Okay. Well, this is this is pretty bunky. I'm I'm down to bunk with this particular thing. Yeah, yeah. This this is a beautiful real world application of what poison ivy the the hero can do. Because yeah, yeah, you you can use any number of either toxins or in this case a virus which infects plants in order to take care of autoimmune diseases in human beings. Now, they never specifically, I, or at least I don't read DC well enough to know what specific experiment Poison Ivy was performing, but I'm going to guess a plant virus was involved. And they are, for the most part, natural, self-assembling structures with genetically programmable shells, which... In this particular article, they designed two different plant virus nanoparticles to combat autoimmune diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, so autoimmune diabetes is something that we're all familiar with. It's childhood diabetes or type 1 diabetes, where our own body makes antibodies against what are called the beta cells in our pancreas. That's the one that produces insulin. And the destruction happens over time. And when we reach a certain threshold of we don't have that those beta cells left, the person cannot produce enough insulin and their blood sugar goes way, way up and they can die that way. So you have to administer insulin for to them. And right now, those diabetics have a normal predicted lifespan but they do have to give themselves insulin forever because there's no reversing that damage for when you have the immune system attack your pancreas rheumatoid arthritis uh, usually happens in 20s 30s something like that and you you again form antibodies and you attack your joints until they become destroyed and you can't use them anymore. Viral nanoparticles in general have a few features that they all share. Mm-hmm. They self-assemble capsids, which is like that viral coat, from one or more types of coat protein. And they're all homogenous in size and shape. So it's just you know a standard one-size-fits-all Lego piece. Mm-hmm. The 
Also, they are genetically encoded so they can be modified to incorporate new sequences. They can be synthesized so we can make them in labs. We have that technology. And additional additional functionality can also be introduced later on down the line. That's how viruses mutate, and it's been the cause of a lot of problems for us as humans over the years. But plant viruses share all those characteristics with a couple differences. For now, they are unable to replicate in mammals, which makes them a lot safer for medical applications. Mm -hmm. And you can scale them in natural plant hosts. You know, you go out to your greenhouse and you've got your virus lab, as opposed to some of the more extensive facilities required to safely manage animal viruses. And, And they've already started being used in some cancer therapies. And you can add in immunodominant peptides to induce immunotolerance. So how did they do this experiment, Santosh? Uh, I mean, it was quite simple and it involved a lot of what you already talked about. So the first thing that they did was they found these viral-like particles and um, they said the leaves of Nicotiana benthamiana. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so they introduced. That sounds like a superhero name. Yeah. <laughs> so they uh, they produce these by what's called agro infiltration. So they actually produce these particles in the plant itself. Um, and then they engineered the coat protein, uh, VP60, and they were able to display certain peptides, which are stretches of amino acids, not quite full proteins, but sections of proteins. So a, a series of amino acids, maybe 16 or 20 long, something like that. And then they were able to get the virus to kind of replicate or get produced in there. And then they could extract them straight out of the leaf. So that was step one. And then they were able to put synthetic peptides either in or on these viral-like particles, these little nanoparticles. And then once they had produced enough of those, they used this in a mouse model to examine whether or not these mice that are kind of prone towards getting diabetes, uh, autoimmune diabetes as they age, they were trying to find out if they could prevent it. And Josh, they could. They were actually able to prevent it. They showed really good controls versus putting in the the peptide alone or the 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 viral particle in alone and essentially what happened was they were introducing the peptide that the mouse's antibodies would normally attack but they were presenting it in such a way that they were trying to teach the cells to say hey this is not a bad thing don't attack it so they basically retrained the immune system to not make antibodies against those insulin-producing cells, and they were able to establish exactly what you said, which is immunotolerance. And they went through and did the same thing in a rheumatoid arthritis mouse model. So these two particular examples were not done in humans. They were synthetic peptides put onto viral particles or nanoparticles and then used in a mouse model. But the results were really, really beautiful, and it lays the groundwork for... To transform people into human plants. <laughs> oh, you leapt the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, let's let's put it in the way because let's do it the comic thing. If Poison Ivy, the comic book hero, could produce these viruses kind of in her body instead of having to do, you know, all the science that these guys did, which is actually extracting it and putting the peptides together and everything. If she were able to just manufacture these particles with the peptides on it, she could probably transmit it to a person who was at risk for rheumatoid arthritis or diabetes um, with a kiss, of course, and they would, you know, absorb those nanoparticles 
particles in and become immunotolerant to those peptides, and she would be able to prevent them from getting diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis, whichever one she picked for these two examples. She is a brilliant plant geneticist, the mm-hmm. Mendel of supervillains. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She, um, it's it's really, you know, and you said villain. I keep saying hero. I'm going to contend because she is really a misunderstood character. I, I, I think she's absolutely a hero in my book. Batman would disagree, but he has worked, <laughs> even he has worked with her on occasion. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, now, <laughs> if you want another series that also addresses plant viruses or or human-plant hybrids, you can also <laughs> check out Farmhand by Rob Guillory. And all I'll say is it starts with a family that has figured out how to grow human organs. That's right. <laughs> grow. Yeah, yeah. And to tell you the absolute truth, I that comic sounds so cool, but this is something that we're trying to do, right? Because there are people waiting for transplants, There are people waiting, and and you have to very morbidly wait for someone to die or be able to give up something like a kidney in order to, you know, save your life. And in this case, if you could just grow the organ, bam, you know, worrying about transplants is a thing of the past. So the last story we'll talk about is a little more sci-fi than comic book, but I was always a huge Star Trek fan growing up yay Uh, and next generation if i'm forced to choose but i also love deep space nine (laughs) all right and one of my favorite things on there was the replicator i just thought that was the coolest thing it's like the little ice and water machine in your fridge Mm -hmm. but it can make any food at all uh yeah yeah so it basically assembled from elements that are around because after all we're really worried about carbon hydrogen oxygen nitrogen by and large a few other minerals and stuff but it took those raw materials and then assembled them in the right way usually on a plate or in a cup too right so it made the porcelain right. <laughs> and then it, it came you know it, it the replicator was a little box and so it showed up in the stage on the box underneath the laser where it all it first looked all glittery glittery like and then it would assemble into the right configuration and boom french fries now what if i told you some of the earliest versions of that technology are now available whoa are you serious well, most people have been approaching it from trying to grow artificial meat uh-huh. or or 3D print proteins. But the Japanese, clever buggers that they are, <laughs> yeah. have decided to take a different tack and created a device that you can lick to give you artificially recreate almost any flavor. Although I feel like <laughs> any may be a bit grandiose in terms of a claim <laughs> okay all right i i get it i get it this is because our taste buds are essentially they oh. <laughs> yeah well they they capture signals from the outside world and then they translate those into chemoelectrical impulses that go to our brain so that we recognize, oh, that's sweet, that's salty, that's spicy, that kind of a thing. But I guess if you just zapped them in just the right way, you could induce those sensations without having to actually have a taste there. Yeah, so years ago, you know, we all learned that the tongue has regions for sweet, sour, salty, and bitter. where higher concentrations were tuned to specific flavors. Well, that has since been proven to be not quite correct, and that distribution is a little more evenly spread. And there's a fifth flavor, umami, which is like a meaty or savory flavor. And the lead scientist, Home Miyashita, made the Norimaki synthesizer that basically relies on tricking your eyes into seeing something that isn't there. So you look at these microscopic pixels of red, green, and blue elements to that combine in intensities to create full-color images. You know, that's how we watch television, or at least used to. So this scientist, Miyashita, 
also thought, what if we could trick the tongue? So it uses five proteinaceous gels that trigger <laughs> that trigger the five different tastes when they make contact with the human tongue. And by licking this device that looks like halfway between a nine volt battery and a vape pen, um, you can wow. eat these color coded. I'm doing a poor job of describing. Actually, I'm doing a great job of describing this, <laughs> but I'll give you. I'll give you their official description sure the the color-coded gels are made from agar formed in the shape of long tubes and use glycine for sweet Mm -hmm. citric for acidic sodium chloride for salty magnesium chloride for bitter and sodium glutamate for umami when the device is pressed against the tongue, you get all five tastes at the same time, but by mixing the proportion of the gels in specific amounts and intensities, you can accomplish of a wide variety of flavors, and the whole thing is wrapped in copper foil, so when you hold it in your hand and touch it to the surface of the tongue, it forms an electrical circuit through the human body, <laughs> creating flavor electrophoresis. Okay. <laughs> Flavor phoresis. I love it. So yeah, yeah. This is flavor without flavors. And you're kind of tricking, you know, the the tongue into sending these signals to your brain without actually having the thing that produces the taste there. I see, I see. Yeah, this is really, really early stuff for a replicator. If we're saying that the replicator is creating some of these tastes without having the actual food available, this is pretty cool. It's it's wild because, and I don't know why they had this graphic here, because the, the person, the subject who's using this in this picture is sticking his tongue all the way the hell out. <laughs> and putting... Are in the back. Yeah, no, 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 no. We know <laughs> there is no tongue map. That's a that's a myth, right? So the the taste buds that you have are scattered all over, and they all have the various ability to sense these predominantly five different flavors. So it's it's not true. You don't have to stick it all the way in the back. But yeah, <laughs> oh lord. So the rep now you can 3D print a block of protein and then lick the flavor phoresis vape to get whatever actual taste you want that protein to have, or at least lock that in your mind. And, you know, unless you switch over to just eating sunlight from chlorophyll after injecting yourself with a plant virus. And uh, that, I think, is the next future that, I think, is the next future of comic book medicine. What say you, Santosh? Uh, comic books away! A device like this could ultimately be adapted into something that could satisfy flavor cravings or even cravings for things like nicotine, alcohol, or uh, sugar for people who are diabetic and want that taste without having to risk becoming hyperglycemic. So it could be it could be a diet aid or a medical treatment for dealing with various addictive substances. So there are a lot of practical applications when handed out to the average everyday person on the street. But I like the idea of it being either a Star Trek device or using it to either foil or create crimes, super crimes. <laughs> Super crimes. So uh, that's it for this year's comic book medicine. We hope you enjoyed some of the previous episodes on it. We'll be back for at least one more episode in the end of July before taking a brief break over the summer to write the next season. But until then, be a hero and wear a mask, both eyes and mouth. If you, that's the need you feel, but, and you know, costumes highly encouraged walk around with whatever it takes, as long <laughs> as your face is covered. Exactly. And, and, you know, be creative with your masks as long as they 
cover properly and you know you you it it produces the right kind of not a seal but prevention of you know a lot of breath getting out of your thing yeah put put something on there put something beautiful put an awesome message do something goofy and make it your own so that's it for this week as always we love to hear your comments questions and feedback this show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to sources used in researching the show. And until next time, as always, wash your hands, wear a mask, <laughs> and if you're going out, safe and happy travels. Bye, guys. 